Moncrief on News Talk. Time now to learn of our goings on around the world that haven't reached our front pages. Our guide, as ever, is Jonathan DeBurka Butler. He joins us now at News Talk. Jonathan, how are you today? Tom, how are you getting on? I enjoyed your little look back on Countdown there. Many happy memories of spending a lot of time when I should have been studying, uh, looking at that programme. It's one of a, a group of shows that sometimes life deals you a card where you find yourself with some afternoon time to spend. And Countdown is one of those shows. Um, the Is it Murder, She Wrote? Is the other one that you... <laughs> 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 Murder She Wrote is another classic, Tom. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Right. So, uh, your first story concerns the police in Bali and um, a Russian model who, who has been up to no good in, in, in a very special place. Yes, uh, she has indeed. This is a woman by the name of Veronica Trushina. And Veronica is what you might call, you described her as a model. We could also called her an actress of sorts or performance mm. artist maybe and uh, she okay. decided to uh, film herself along with her boyfriend on a sacred mountain in Bali called Mount Batur and she uploaded the video to a well-known website uh, for, for that kind of performance artistry shall we say <laughs> and uh, it was watched uh, over 1.2 million times before it was taken down, uh, promptly deleted by the well-known site. Um, and that is because it had insulted the uh, cultural um, uh, norms, I suppose, or whatever you want to call them, uh, um, of uh, Indonesia and of that particular island, right? So she had specifically gone, it appears she had sensitivities is the words I was, look, I was looking for. She had specifically gone to this uh, mountain um, to perform this uh, act uh, and it was done to provoke a reaction and it's got one. Uh, police are looking for her now um, uh, and if she's still on the island and if she gets found and charged by law enforcement, she could be sentenced to two years and eight months in prison. We suspect that she is long gone from the island, however, um, but should she go back, uh, she'd be arrested straight away and uh, and would face, as I said, up to near, uh, nearly nearly three years in prison uh, for this. Um, right. So, yeah. This is essentially a publicity stunt on her behalf, isn't it? It's her really drawing yeah. attention to what she does for a living and and entertaining her near 260,000 followers on TikTok and other yeah. subscribers on various websites. Yes, she she has half a million uh, subscribers on that other website that I that I mentioned. Um, so you know she's popular uh, in some places, but I don't know what you think. It ju but just to go to another country and 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 you know deliberately provoke them uh, is is a little yeah. Bit, I think uh, it's awful to be honest. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's you know go do do it in your own country, whatever you want, and make yeah. a political statement. But to go somewhere else and deliberately provoke them is uh, as I think uh, a bit offside. Yeah, it is. Um, and you have to think it's some as, as it gets publicity and as it generates, you know, yeah. further TikTok stuff, something you may see more of, which is unfortunate Absolutely. as well. Yeah. Um, so on to Somalia, uh, where there is serious trouble. What exactly has ignited the trouble? Yeah, that's a, that's a great place to start, to be honest with you. I mean, Somalia since uh, 1991 has really been in, in a pretty chaotic state. Um, 
and uh, it is backed by an awful lot of countries who, who put an awful lot of money into it to try and stabilize it because the, the region is is really quite unstable um but there's terrible troubles uh, between different clans and uh, ethnic groups in the region who are in the country who are you know and, and there's lots of different regions and uh, they all have a level of autonomy and and they find it very difficult to agree on how the centralized government works okay if that makes sense right so they've had a president there for the last four years muhammad abdul ahi muhammad and he was supposed to come to the end of his term in february all right um he last year last september they had agreed to create a new format of indirect elections uh, for a new president okay sometime this year um, but it soon became apparent that as that uh, particular setup wasn't coming into place and as various different regions squabbled over how that setup was going to come into place, that uh, this guy wasn't going to go, right? So the president was meant to go, as I said, in February. He couldn't go anywhere because there were no new MPs. It's oh, okay. the MPs who basically elect him. So this was the problem. So it came to February. And he decided he wanted to extend his term. But the lower house, while the lower house said, yes, we, you should extend your term, the Senate said no. Various different factions basically started bringing it out onto the street. The army began to split and uh, there was fighting over the weekend, which resulted in the deaths of about four, four or five people. We're not, we're not sure. It might have been a few more than that and quite a bit of trouble. Now, laterally, things have calmed down, right? And the lower house has since reneged on, on what it said it was going to do, right? They're, they're not extending his term anymore. He's agreed to that. The prime minister is going to take over for an interim period, and it looks like they will head to elections in September. Um, and all the while, you've got Al-Shabaab, a terrorist organization that's operating, operating in the area, who are waiting in the wings, looking to fill a vacuum. And that is what everybody is rather worried about um, that it could break out into a sort of a Syria type situation where you have various different groups who are waiting to fill vacuums and, uh, you know, run, you know, not necessarily right. run the central government, but run different parts of the country a la Syria. Right. I have a bit more sympathy for him now than I had when you started that report. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like he had nowhere really to go. The two year extension I can see how he would have seen that as not like a kind of a Putin just stay in power forever type of thing, but but just to not let the vacuum um, fill yeah. the space, really. It, it was a continuity thing, but the opposition had basically said, well, look, he's trying to hang on to power. So the, there was trouble, and now the fact that he stood down, it does give you a little bit of hope, I suppose, that yeah. he is genuine and that things might get sorted out. But it's right. been so long. Um, I mean, what is it, 30 years now that we've yeah. been talking about stories like this in Somalia? And uh, and uh, it, it just never seems to uh, be resolved. But look, no, it never does. You, you, we live in hope. Stops, you know, there, there's there's always hope, I suppose. Yeah, we live in hope. Um, so in Nigeria, this is quite a dark tale of this man who's been detained for a year without charge at this point. Yeah, it's actually a story I've been keeping. He's an individual I've been keeping an eye on um, because uh, I actually came across this story a year ago. And, and when I saw it again, um, 
I, I, I couldn't believe that he hadn't been released, to be honest with you. His name is Mubarak Bala, and he's the president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria. And his background is very interesting, right? He's, he's the son of a well-known um, uh, Islamic scholar, right? Uh, he's from the northeast of Nigeria, all right? And he, this is the son now, the son renounced Islam in 2014, right, and started talking against it. And as a result of that, he was forcibly committed to a psychiatric facility by his family, okay, uh, in, in the state of, of Kano. But he was then discharged, <sighs> right? Yeah, so his family didn't like what he was saying, and they said, right, you're, you're fairly crazy. Um, but he was discharged, and he moved from that state to another state nearby. I think it's Kaduna state he, he moved to. And from there, he started his work um, as president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria, right? Now, I don't know if this was something that he started himself or how many followers he has, but anyway, um, that's what he did. And then he was arrested in April of last year, obviously. Uh, and, and the reason for that was there was there was calls for action against him that were made by various different religious figures. Now, I don't know if his father was involved or, or who it was. But he has been held in detention without charge for a year ever since then. And that's despite the fact that last December, Nigeria's high court ruled that Bala's detention went against his rights and uh, that he was to be released. And not only was he to be released, but he was also to be paid damages. But the, the, the authorities in this state still haven't released him four months after that decision from the high court. Um, so it's outrageous. And, and for obvious reasons, the United Nations have got involved uh, and basically said that, you know, this isn't on. And more than anything, it, it feeds into, you know, the things that extremist groups want in that neck of the woods. So, you know, Boko Haram are operating there, obviously. Um, and the UN are basically saying, look, this is counterproductive um, yeah. to do this kind of thing, you know. Um, so there's a new bail application that's been put in uh, by his lawyers, um, but unfortunately for him, because there's a judicial strike in the country and what with everything else going on, uh, proceedings have been delayed. Um, but hopefully he'll get out yeah. and, and hopefully he'll get out safe and sound as well. My word, that that lad doesn't have much luck, it must be said. Uh, his own family forcibly committing him and possibly his dad being involved in keeping him in court. And then High Court ordered just being ignored by the Nigerian yeah, that's, authorities. That's the most frightening thing, that the High Court actually ruled on this and the state did nothing about it. Uh, that's that's quite frightening. Right. That's, that's, wish all the best for him as well. Um, this is a fascinating story you have concerning France and these fugitive Italian leftist militants. People wouldn't think that France would be holding on to Italian leftist militants are also not sending them back to Italy. And it, it's quite an old story, this, isn't it? It is, yeah. It goes back to the, the uh, I suppose, the Cold War, really, uh, when a lot of people in the West would have been worried about Italy. And it had a huge communist party, Italy. And um, it, there was, and there still is, quite a bit of left-wing activity in the country. And there was a period there called the, the Anni di Piombo, which were the years of lead, uh, which basically involved left-wing and right-wing groups going around the place shooting each other and blowing up places and, and particularly targeting judges and politicians and that kind of thing. I think there was even a prime minister, um, yeah, I'm open I remember to on this, Aldo Moro, who might have been assassinated at that time in Rome. But anyway, um, eventually as things died down and prosecutions began to happen in Italy, 
these guys, particularly on the left, in the Brigata Rosa, okay, the, the, the Red Brigade, as they were called, they began to go to France and they were offered... Um, they were offered a free pass, I suppose, in France. So during the, the time of Francois Mitterrand, he basically said, look, you can stay here. I won't send you back to Italy as long as you say you'll never fire a gun again or plant a bomb. And all they had to do was say, oh, yeah, we'll never do that again. And they stayed there. And in the meantime, these people were sentenced to prison. They were put on trial. They were sentenced to prison uh, in absentia, obviously. And the Italian government have been looking for them ever since, right? But the, between the jigs and the reels, uh, France has never sent them back, right? But recently, after a couple of years of, of real tension, actually, between France and Italy, um, during which I think even ambassadors were, were, were sent home and that kind of thing, um, Macron and the, the, the new... Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi have got on well and they seem to have sorted this situation out. So now France has arrested seven fugitive Italian militants, left-wing militants, and uh, is going to send them back. Um, so it's quite a development. Uh, and given that there's uh, given that there's about 200 on the list, <laughs> the Italians handed the French a list of about 200 individuals that they wanted sent back. Uh, there could be quite a job there for them to do over the coming words. months and years. <laughs> And these are lads who've been living, you know, a normal life in France, basically, for a very long, decades yeah, at this yeah, point. Absolutely suddenly like finding their past coming back to haunt them when they thought absolutely. they... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, you have tales of a border clash in countries with very hard to pronounce names. <laughs> um, off you go, Jonathan. Yeah, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, uh, who, who feature quite often on, on, on this particular slot. We love, we love the stands. Uh, mainly because of their crazy leaders, to be honest with you. But in this case, um, it's it's a run-of-the-mill border dispute um, over water uh, and and specifically, I think, a reservoir um, that's on the on the border between these two countries, right? So it's in Western Kyrgyzstan that this is taking place, right? In in a, near a town called Koktash, and. Uh, the skirmish has started on Wednesday, right? So there's two sides to the story, right? Tajikistan basically says that Kyrgyz troops opened fire on the border, on border guards, all right, and started trying to forcibly take over the area. For their part, Kyrgyzstan authorities basically said that things kicked off on Wednesday when Tajik officials attempted to put surveillance cameras up to monitor the water supply facility that they're kind of fighting over right so there was a bit there was a bit of back and forth a bit of shelling a good few people had to be moved out from villages in the area a few people died and there's at least four dead and a good few more injured um things seemed to have calmed down with a ceasefire on thursday but then they started again on friday now i haven't heard anything since uh but you would hope that um you know, sense will come to the fore here and that the two of them will calm down. But it's an ongoing issue uh, and not just in, involving Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, Uzbekistan are in the mix on that as well. And it all stems from the fall of the Russian Empire or the not the Russian Empire, sorry, the Soviet Union and borders not being, you know, demarcated properly when the Berlin Wall came down and, and everything right. else that came after. It. Okay. Um, and we so have something a like a water team. reservoir. When you have something like a water reservoir, obviously it's, that's a, that's a big resource that 
everybody wants to have the control of. God, I'd say they have many more like that to, to oh, um, disagree with each other about as well. Um, you mentioned Russia there, and your next story has, um, God, you wouldn't expect there's going to be excitement during a drafts match, but you can be wrong. Yeah, this was during the Women's World Drafts Championship, and the game had actually started. Uh, it was between Russia's Tamara Tansi Kushina and Poland's Natalia Sadowska, okay? And they were, you know, the way these drafts, I think, is the same as chess. They have several games, and, and it's sort of like... Like in snooker, I suppose frames turn into matches and all that kind of thing. I don't know the ins and outs, but anyway, it was during one of the one of the games, right? And uh, officials noticed that the Russian woman's flag was up beside her. So basically, the two of them are sitting at, at a table, right? And the camera looks at the table, and on the side of the table is a Russian flag and a Polish flag, right? They noticed the Russian flag was uh, beside the Russian woman, and it shouldn't have been there. And the reason for that is, of course, because ever since WADA, that's the World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, banned Russian sportsmen and women from competing under the Russian flag, uh, they, they haven't been allowed to, to do it. So the association that was running this particular competition noticed straight away, they hadn't noticed before, obviously, and an official rushed in, ripped the Russian flag off the table, uh, and distracted uh, distracted the Russian competitor. Unfortunately, she went on to lose that particular part of the match. But there's there's an interesting side to it uh, that in sol- a very kind side, I thought that in solidarity with her opponent, the Polish individual Sadowska removed her Polish flag as well. Um, so I thought that was a nice show of you know yeah, very sporting. To, to, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Putin is involved in this. Now, he's not wading in and demanding a, a rematch, is he? No. Um, now, Putin is involved in as much as that as a, a spokesperson uh, named uh, Dmitry Peskov um, issued a statement, right? Now, the, the Polish people who were running this competition, it should be said, right, apologized straight away, okay? And uh, they said, look, you know, we didn't mean to insult anybody or distract anybody. This was something that we had to do because WADA directed us to do it and we would have lost our, you know, um, connection or our association with with that body if we hadn't done what we did. But they came back anyway. The Russians said uh, that the Polish apology was grand and that, that the, the, this incident should be considered settled. But he did. That right. They did think that the Russian player had lost the game largely due to that incident. So they were okay right. about Very. it, but to a certain degree. Okay. Very good. Um, I have to say, I'm still struggling with the idea of competitive uh, drafts, but um, leave that with me. Uh, finally, in Australia, well, I'm I'm amazed to see the the word Woolworths appear. I thought that was a, a brand name of shops that had long since disappeared, but it's involved in in this story in Australia. Yeah, it is. It's in the Northern Territory specifically. Um, it's called Dan Murphy's Store uh, in in or near Darwin. I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, um, presumably it was in a re- relatively isolated area. But the, the problem with where they were going to locate this particular um, alcohol megastore, is what they're describing it, was, was near three communities which banned the selling and drinking of alcohol. Okay. They're Aboriginal communities, right? And yeah. look, it's no secret that there's there that the Northern Territory has the highest per capita rate of alcohol consumption in Australia, and it 
impacts disproportionately on Aboriginal communities. Okay, so there are places there where they try to basically stop the consumption of alcohol altogether. These guys had been told back in 2019 by uh, an independent commission for the territory that it wasn't a good idea for them to put this place here, okay, in this location. Now, Woolworths appealed and then they said, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll move the store a kilometre away from the original site, right? There was an uproar about that and there was even more of an uproar when the territory's government pushed amendments through Parliament that effectively nullified that independent commission's decision. But the store, in the end, obviously decided the PR was too bad around this and they decided to commission their own review which, fa- which found that the company had failed to engage sufficiently with Aboriginal groups, and now they've well stood done. down. So they've turned well done, Woolworths. Yeah, they've turned a yeah. pretty bad situation into something that might work positively for them. Um, very good. Definitely the right decision. Great stuff, Jonathan. Thank you very much as always. We're beaten by Thanks, the Tom. clock uh, on that. Lovely talking to you. Um, you can listen back to the podcast around the world on Newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Coming up after the break, working with your ex. Moncrief on Newstalk.